0: Welcome to The Commercial Disco, a voyage of commercial discovery, the only show dedicated to exploring the commercialisation of great ideas and research across deep tech and science, driven by the ambition of the people that make up Australia's unique innovation landscape. We talk to the greatest minds about what is influencing their work and their insights into the ingredients needed to bring great Australian innovation to life.
1: Welcome to the Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley. Today I'm talking to Adam Gilmore from the Gold Coast. Adam Gilmore is obviously the founder and chief executive of Gilmore Space Technologies. Hi, Adam. How are you going? Great, James. Lovely to talk to you today. All right. Now, we're going to be talking about capability and sovereign capability. It's something that uh, has sort of entered the mainstream lexicon, it seems. Everyone's talking about what sovereign capability means these days, and, and it's a contested term, really. So I want to ask you, when we're talking about space and the things that you're working very hard on, what does sovereign capability mean to Gilmore Space Technologies?
2: I think the textbook or the most precise definition of sovereign capability is that a nation can control the technology from the point of view of the IP, control of the process, control of the manufacturing, control of the people that are doing it in terms of, you know, when the proverbial hits the fan, if you need a certain amount of certain units, you get it, no questions asked. And, you know, the way that most countries in the world tackle that problem is they make sure that they use locally owned, locally manufactured products. So if you look at most of our allies, they cut a big part of their government spending and only give it to domestically owned, domestically produced companies because they know that when they really need it, they will have the control over that company. So our government has started off with the concept of sovereignty as being made in Australia, and that's better than not being made in Australia. But if it's still made in Australia by a foreign company, in a crisis situation, there's nothing stopping that company from saying, okay, I'm going to make my widgets, but I'm sending them to my home country because my home country has ordered me to do that. And I think that's where we've got to move to. We've got to have as much things that we can build in Australia, built in Australia by Australian companies from a national security point of view. The second thing I'll say around the benefits of doing something like that is the supply chain. So I'm going to use a weird example from a foreign country, but the NASA bosses were just here last week and Pam Melroy, who's the deputy administrator of NASA, made a comment that NASA studies the economic benefit of spending in a domestic economy, and the recent study said there'd be a three-times return on that spending, and that makes a lot of sense because if you look at when a government buys from an Australian-owned company, they will predominantly have their supply chain in Australia, which we do. Most of our launch vehicle by mass and by cost is already in the supply chain of Australia. So when we get government spending, it just reverberates through the economy. If you're a foreign company that is building something, even in Australia, you are going to naturally respond back into your home country for as many components as you can because you trust them, you've been using them for a long time. There's nothing subversive about it. It's just you buy what you know. And so it's going to be very, very hard move through time for, I'll pick a company, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, they come over here and start making things to stop using their supply chain. And that is our experience with working with these companies when we say, okay, we want to get into your supply chain. They say, well, you've got to be better and cheaper and more reliable than my supply chain for me to even go over to use you in our supply chain. So when you've got a, a sovereign, and I meant sovereign as Australian owned company in Australia making things, we benefit and we use Australian suppliers because for the same reasons. They're close, they're trust, we can take the product back if we need to, we can work with them, same time zone, same laws,
1: etc. And that's why I think it's so important. All right, let's unpick that a little bit. You're obviously making this distinction between Domestic capability and sovereign capability, like Australian-owned, Australian-controlled, versus uh, you know something that's that's made here. It's almost bizarre to many listeners to think that there is a rocket company that uh, is attempting an orbital launch like you are in Australia. You know, ten years ago that would have been a difficult suggestion to believe, right? So here you are doing that. But there are elements of sovereign capability in areas where Australia needs to bring the technology or needs to bring the expertise into the country. So you've sort of done that. I mean, we can't do everything in this country. So how do you map that to strategic assets or strategic industries? I think the way you do it, the way our allies have done it is they've
2: found companies that are along the ways in developing technology and then they've given them funding to continue developing that technology. You know, a great example is the M1 Abrams tank was actually manufactured by a company that wasn't making tanks before that. And there's lots and lots of examples of that around the world. And so that's what Australian government can do. They can go into companies that are adjacent technologies or already started making things like we have, and give them more funding to finish the technology and to extend the technology. And that's the missing part in the defence industry supply chain right now.
1: Okay, so let's talk specifically on defence. The ability to launch satellites, large and small, I suppose, is a massively important strategic advantage. So your funding, to my understanding, is through government and industry department programs, plus venture capital, plus your own money. So, whatever element of defense there is, is relatively small. So, it's not necessarily looked at in the same way as you're discussing it. Well, I think the problem is where we started was this concept in
2: Australia that Australians can't make any sophisticated technology. And that's something that I've been butting my head against since I started the company. You know, a lot of people think that, you know, we can farm well, we can mine well, but that's about all we can do. And everything else we have to get from overseas. And that's just not the way the rest of the world works. You know, they basically have entrepreneurs that say, look, I've come up with an idea. I think I've got a market edge. I'm going to have a go. And they're supported. And I think that's what's important in Australia. I like to say that we're going to go for our first orbital launch this year. And I've only had a million dollars of support from the Australian Space Agency. That's crazy. I've had more money out of defence. So I'm glad that the Space Command has stepped up and given us some funding for our second launch. But I just think it's crazy that we're less than six months out of a first orbital launch attempt and we've only got a million dollars from the Space Agency. You just wouldn't see that in any other nation. And I think that's part of the problem is in Australia, there's almost the philosophy of I'm going to wait until you've succeeded before I support you. And in something as complicated as a rocket or a, or a submarine, it's just almost an impossibility to get there. If we didn't have venture capital, we'd have never made it.
1: Yeah, that's a uh, quite. It's quite extraordinary, anyway, that venture capital got involved as early as it did with Gilmore Space Technologies. So that is, in effect, unusual. I have been listening to a book called Liftoff, Eric Berger, about the early days of SpaceX. And you kind of forget, in all the technical success and commercial success of SpaceX, that they were actually on their knees at at a couple of points along the way and a massive NASA contract allowed them to build on early success. So I guess from a civilian space administration point of view, that's what kept that company going while it got over that valley of death. Agreed, yeah. I mean,
2: I've read the book as well. I was very interested to see that actually got funding all the way through. You know, the US Defense Department was giving them money for almost all of their missions. Even after they failed, they kept giving them money. There's another rocket company called Astra that had the same thing. DARPA gave them $80 million worth of grants while they made, I think, five failed launch attempts and are very different to us.
1: Okay, so just before we get on to a a launch update, just to stay on defence for a minute, the Defence Strategic Review, my understanding, is with the ministers. Actually, just before we talk about that, there was a Defence Innovation Review that had been commissioned by the previous government. That never actually saw the light of day, and it was specifically looking at commercial innovation or ways to better engage commercial enterprise in some of the innovation ambitions of the defence department. Have you ever heard of that review? Have you did you get any insight from that? Yeah,
2: I did. I was actually um, I've actually seen the draft of that and contributed to that document. So I'm quite surprised that it never was released because I thought it was a really good document that talked about a pretty good way of getting Australian companies through the valley of death. talked about off-ramps, talked about risk mitigation, very much like how venture capital works. They give you a little bit of money. If you're moving forward, they give you more. If you're not, they stop funding you and you die. I think that's a good philosophy for defence when they're doing cutting-edge research and
1: development. All right, let's get to the Defence Strategic Review. I know there's a huge amount of interest, obviously, given the geostrategic circumstances of the world right now in that document, and we'll see what that looks like when it becomes more public. But just as someone who is engaged with Defence, you've come a long way on your road towards your first attempt at an orbital launch. Defence is not well known for engaging with Australian industry. Like, if you had to rank the departments on Who's really good at buying from local industry, or who's really good at using those procurement dollars to support local industry? Defense wouldn't be at the top of that list, would they?
2: They'd be down near the bottom, but they recognize that. And so they're working towards making that a lot better. I guess my frustration is I haven't seen a lot of activity in that yet. I haven't seen people that are kind of trying to lean forward, take more risk put the first money down on the table. I think it's especially relevant after the DSR. You know, we've heard from multiple sources that there's an element of that that says you must move fast and you must take risk. And I just haven't seen a lot of activity around that, especially on the space side of defence.
1: So as we're talking right now, the uh, National Reconstruction Fund is being debated in the Senate. How do you see, on dual-use technologies or dual-use capabilities such as your own, how do you see the sort of defence funding and that, you know, move faster mentality that you're trying to imprint there, how do you see that working with something like the National Reconstruction Fund and whatever money would flow through that? Yeah, well, that's the tricky thing about
2: space technology. It is truly dual-use you can almost use the same monitoring system that monitors crop and vegetation health to look for ships in the sea at night. Other sensors that you look at, you know, how much algae is in the water you can also use in defence. There's almost not a single sensor that you can use for civilian applications that you can't use for defence. And the problem with that is, you get a bit of a chicken and egg thing happening where the defence department says, okay, the civilian side should fund this. And the civilian side says, I'll oh, defence, fund this. So I hope space doesn't get kind of caught in the middle.
1: Okay, let's move on to uh, getting an update on your first launch. Talking to Adam Gilmore, obviously, chief executive and co-founder at Gilmore Space Technologies. Where are you up to? What's the ETA on that launch?
2: We're very, very busy putting the stages together. So we are in the middle of integrating the hybrid rocket motors onto the first stage this week and the next couple of weeks. We did a test of the third stage's oxidizer tank up at our Bowen launch site last week, so that's come back to get integrated into the stage. So it's a really busy period right now because we're literally building the rocket as we kind of finish the final designs on some of the bits and pieces of the rocket, like the brackets and the fixtures. Uh, We've already kind of hit a few hurdles where we designed something it didn't quite fit. We've got to redesign it. So we're in a bit of that troubleshooting phase right now. But we are looking to get all of our stages finished by June and then sent up to Bowen for some testing. You know, we're going to do quite a bit of testing in Bowen, so I'm not sure how long it will be before the stages get there in our first launch attempt. but If I'm optimistic, August, September is when we'll be having a go at our first test launch. The launch site's coming together really well. So we poured the concrete pad for the launch pad last week. That was the last bit of concrete we had to pour. Everything else has been done. The fluids tower is at the site now being constructed and fitting out with all the fluid systems. So we're really near the final touches of that. The main things we're waiting on is approvals. We still don't have our environmental approval after 18 months of working with the Department of Environment. Is that, sorry,
1: federal or state? Federal.
2: Yeah. Yep. and we still don't have our launch site approval or our launch approval. I'm pretty confident we're going to get those pretty soon, but, again, it's been a very long, drawn-out process.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, you're learning how to build a rocket and the government is learning how to cope with the fact that we have a company that can launch rockets. Yep. And all, all the processes that go with that, this is potentially a very dumb question. I'm not sure. How do you transport the rocket? How many pieces does it come in and where does it get assembled?
2: Yes. Yeah, so we basically are building three stages. It's a three-stage vehicle. So we're... Manufacturing all the stages here in, in the Gold Coast, and then we're shipping them individually by road up to Bowen. We have a vehicle assembly building, a VAB, in Bowen. Not quite as big as the one in Kennedy, but does the job. Uh. And so, final integration of the rocket will be done up in Bowen. And what we're also doing in Bowen is a lot of system testing. We'll do fluid checks. We're going to turn on some of the um, Smaller rocket motors called Vernier motors. We're going to do a Vernier motor test and then we're going to do a full wet dress rehearsal, load the rocket up with all the fluids, make sure there's no leaks, all the temperatures are correct,
1: etc. And then if all of that goes well, then we launch. Oh, well, it's getting very exciting, isn't it? Okay, just in the sequence of this interview, I probably should have asked you a little bit more about the supply chain. I think there were some supply chain holdups, I think, or things that held you up a little bit along the way. Just talk us through who are your suppliers, where are they from, what were the hold-ups, what does that process look like?
2: Well, I think one of the problems that we've had is we really have tried to use Australian companies as much as we can, and the way we've done that is we've looked at companies that make something that looks like a rocket part, and then we say to them, do you reckon you could make this and they say, well, we'll give it a try. Everybody loves rockets. And so that process has been quite a research and development process. So, you know, we're not buying off the shelf stuff that's already gone into space. And so some of our delays have been, you know, some of our suppliers in Australia have taken longer than we all hoped they would to make and finish the components. So that's part of the problem. We do have some of our supply chain overseas. And even with established companies, there's been delays in the components as well. So it's definitely been something that's a bugbear for us. If it's made externally, there's a lot more delays than if we make it ourselves. And that's why we want to try to make as much as we can internally.
1: And then uh, on launch day, how many Australian companies will then be rated for space if you uh, get that rocket to go that far?
2: At least 300 Australian companies will get their space qualification. If we successfully go to orbit on the first mission and we're using them for the second vehicle as well. So if the first one fails and the second one succeeds, then they'll get qualified then.
1: Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. Can you describe to me from that book we were talking about earlier, you know, the first successful Falcon 1 launch, I think, I think it was their fourth attempt, but that literally changed everything for that company, that successful launch. What would it mean? when Gilmore gets its successful launch, be it this one or the next one or, or the one
2: after? I think I think what it means is, you know, an Australian company has done something that was until then seen as an impossibility. So I'll give you an example, right? There's a lot of people talking about nuclear submarines as being super, super complicated and only seven nations in the world make nuclear submarines. Well, only ten nations in the world make orbital launch vehicles. So, you know, in terms of complexity, it's right up the top of something really, really, really hard to do. And so I think, you know, when we get to orbit, that will be a massive stake in the ground to say, this is the beginning, there's more to come. We have the moon in our sights. And Australia's gotta stop shooting itself in the foot and thinking that it cannot be done. We'll have the the biggest party that you can imagine when we go to orbit.
1: I have no doubt. I've asked you this before. I guess I'll I'll ask you again, just in terms of setting expectations for the first launch. I know you want to see that rocket go all the way and make its orbit. From a personal point of view, how do you look at it? How do you manage your expectations? And indeed, what are those expectations?
2: That's a really good question because we think a lot about this. We're cognizant that in the history of the world, no first launch vehicle has worked for a company that's doing it for the first time. Obviously, the SLS worked, but that was contracted to companies that have been launching rockets for 50 years. So, you know, if you look across statistically, our chances are not great. So what we look at is there's certain milestones on the way to orbit that are very important. The first milestone is actually the wet dress rehearsal. If you can get through a wet dress rehearsal without any leaks or anything like that, That's already a a big step forward. And then the next one is getting off the pad. So clearing the tower is traditionally seen as a pretty big deal. And then there's a a concept in engineering called Max-Q. And the Max-Q is the maximum dynamic pressure on the rocket, which is a combination of the speed of the rocket, the atmospheric density, and any of the jet wings that are coming. That's the most... Structural stress that's on the rocket. If you can survive max Q, you'll basically structurally be okay for the rest of the journey to space. So, max Q for most rockets is somewhere in the first stage of burn. I think for us, it's around the 40 second mark. So, if we can keep going through 40 seconds, hit max Q, that will be a big, big deal. I consider that about 80, 90% of the way to space already if you can hit max Q. And then super party time is a first stage finish, second stage ejection, second stage light up. So relativity space almost got there. They had a a second stage separation, but the second stage didn't light up. So if we even get our second stage to light up, again, fantastic. And then anything else above that is just super, super duper unreal.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to super party time, so that's uh that's that sounds great look we're in different cities we're doing this via video link but i can feel the energy and anticipation i want to really thank you adam for uh for having a chat to us today on the uh, first software capabilities stuff which is obviously very interesting and very topical but also that update thank you so much
2: first james thanks a lot
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Commercial Disco Podcast. Please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And please visit our website, innovationOz.com, to check out our reporting on tech, innovation, and public policy. You can also follow us on social media to ask us any questions or to suggest a guest for the show. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you a great week ahead.